0: Alright, enough talking about the whole business of myth and why, in fact, we tell myths and what exactly we're doing when we tell them. Let's actually talk about some myths themselves. Um, and we're starting with really the most obvious place to start studying Greek myth, with Hesiod's Theogony. Um, this is obviously the story where all of the gods come to be in most cases. It is the, the as close to an origin story as we're going to get. Um, and it is also a creation myth. Virtually every uh, culture, every civilization we talk about in this class is going to have their own creation myth. Um, basically people have been asking the question where did we come from for as long as there have been people able to ask the question um, and this is one of the earliest res- earliest answers we have on record. Um, certainly one of the most celebrated. Uh And you're getting the original text here, like this is Hesiod's Theogony, this is where most of these myths are going to come from, Um, this is as old a Greek text as we will have besides Homer himself, Um, so this is really the source. Um, But that said, I want to kind of stress, because this is going to come up pretty fast, as much as Hesiod may be the authority on the subject, the source to read on the subject, he's also very clearly just compiling older sources um he's writing in what is likely the 7th or 8th century BCE so like 700 or 800 years before uh before you know the Roman Empire and most of like what we associate with there um obviously like the assessment of Christ is the real like, factor in determining the date. Um, But anyway, long, long ago, 2,800 years before now. Um, So this is a very, very old text, and it has kept up well, but he's also quoting sources that are even older than he is. Um, So these myths, the stories themselves, may very well be another two, three hundred years older than Hesiod, may very well date back to 1000 BCE and 3000 years ago. Um, And this is going to be pretty much par for the course. Uh, the origin of these myths are complicated. You can see connections to other mythic traditions. We'll look at that next week. Um, but for now, we're going to treat this as our primary source. We're going to say, you know, this is this is as close to bedrock as we're going to get in this class. Um, but I also want to emphasize what exactly Hesiod is saying and like what he is emphasizing, especially in contrast and comparison to a lot of what we're going to see in other traditions, as well as, for that matter, other Greek myths. But the point that I really wanted to make before I got very, very distracted is there's no canon here. Um, Nobody gets to decide who the defining writers and the defining myths actually are. Um, We say it's Hesiod, and it is Hesiod, because tradition has it that it's Hesiod, but people will absolutely modify these myths. We will see retellings of the same stories presented here, with details changed, added and subtracted, with origin stories changed. Like, get used to that. Just in the two readings we have today, the Hesiod's Theogony and uh, the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, you should have noticed um, that they differ about where Aphrodite comes from. Um, For Hesiod, Aphrodite is spawned by the castrated Uranus's testicles falling into the ocean in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, Aphrodite is just one of Zeus's daughters. Um, And like I said, this is going to be pretty normal. There is not one definitive story here. Um, There's not like this huge raging debate in Greek culture about where exactly Aphrodite came from, whether she is uh, Zeus's daughter or whether she's got this whole like asexual origin. Um, What I want to stress instead is what that means about the two writers. What are they stressing? in these cases? What are they saying about Aphrodite and about everything that she represents? Um, So as we go through, um, obviously we are going to pay attention to the details. One of the main goals today is we need to talk about the first generation of gods and the whole creation business that leads up to them. Um, But I also want to spend some time and I want you to focus both in this text and going forward on what is sort of happening symbolically or thematically. What is Hesiod telling us about the world and about the stuff that he is talking about? Um, But enough preface, let's jump right in. Uh, What may be striking to you um, at the very first glimpse of this text is that it is not chronological. Um, Hezid is not interested in telling us a story in the same way that, like, you go to a movie and get a start to finish story with a you know very defined beginning, middle, and end three act structure, whatever you want to call it. Um, instead, he kind of has like a checklist of things to do before he can even get to the story of where Zeus came from. Um, but he's even going to mention Zeus out of order. Uh, so he starts with the muses, um, and this is pretty typical. Like Homer will always invoke the muses before he tells any of his major myths. Hesiod invokes the muses here and in works and days. Um, Most of the great Greek artists and writers are going to invoke the muses, especially before they start telling big important epic stories or myths. Um, And notice why he does it, because he tells us. Um, He starts with his basic invocation, he names the muses, he names, you know, important gods and goddesses. Um, But in that second paragraph, um, he remarks that they, the muses, are the ones who once taught Hesiod beautiful song as he was tending to his sheep at the foot of sacred Helicon. Um, As far as the Greeks are concerned, artists are inspired by the muses. And I realize that like we use the term inspiration to talk about like a bolt of lightning that causes an artist to have an idea and then they just like have this brilliant idea. Um, But the term here inspire is actually breathing. Uh, Like the muses breathe ideas into Hesiod and you can see that as either talking or as like some weird metaphysical thing. Um, It's not entirely clear. Um, but I want to stress that, like, we get our word inspiration because of this myth, not the other way around. Um, like, the, the translation here is a rough one-to-one because we very much adopted this concept from the Greeks through the Romans and so on and so forth. Um, but this is one of the first and one of many examples of an idea or a word that actually comes from the myth. Um, That, you know, our very notion of how artistic inspiration works is just rooted in the Nine Muses and Hesiod's declarations and Homer's declarations to them. Um, So, like, there are multiple times, if you check the footnotes especially throughout this text, you will see a lot of places where, like, the, the editor will remark like our word comes from this text or it comes from this idea or we're not entirely sure what the word means until after this text, get used to that. Myth and language are very intimately related, as Tolkien pointed out in his poem last week. Um, So a lot of these concepts spring right from this point. Um, But notice also what Hesiod says about this. They inspired Hesiod. They gave him the song to sing. Um, They made him an artist, in short. And as a consequence, he says that he has to sing to them always first and last. Virtually all great works of Greek art are going to begin with an invocation of the muses. Frequently they will attribute the work to them afterwards. But also in all cases, they see the act of both writing the story, writing the myth, and reproducing it, telling the story, as itself a holy act, something inspired by the muses, an act of reverence and worship, again, as Tolkien stressed. Um, Now, he goes on, like, we're not done with the muses. He gives us a good solid extra page on top of, you know, everything he's already said before he's even willing to start in on the rest of the text. Um, So I want to stress exactly how important the muses are, um, first off, notice that the muses are the daughter of Zeus and Nemazni, memory. Um, part of what we should be thinking when we hear that, like the you know, creative act is deeply connected to memory. Um, remember that these were not written texts in their initial form. Like we have the text as it was, in fact, written down, um, but for what is likely a long time beforehand again, this is where we get our 7th, 8th century date, Um, it was recited. Um, and this is the usual way that people would communicate myths and poems and ideas. Um, they were not written down, people did not read them from a book, and in fact the text itself sort of bears that out. You'll notice that a lot of the passages, like every time that they mention Zeus, it's Aragas-bearing Zeus. Every time they mention Cronus, it's crooked-minded Cronus. Every time they mention Poseidon, it's earthshaker Poseidon. Um, these are epithets which is a literary device that helps the memory. Um, when you recognize that, like, the name of your major players, your gods and goddesses, your heroes and so on, they have this attached idea to them. Zeus who bears the aegis, Poseidon who um, shakes the earth. Um, like, you'll see these all over Greek mythology, and part of the intention is to make it easier to remember how all of the events play out and how the actual meter goes. Um, The Theogony, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, would have been recited to a crowd, frequently with, like, drums or the lyre or other music playing at the same time. Um, So this was meant to be, like, reported live, and for that matter, if you're going to memorize something this massive, like a 24-hour-long poem like the Iliad or the Odyssey, you've got to include tricks to help your bard or your poet to be able to remember all the little details. So part of it is it rhymes. Um, you'll notice in like the intro to this text that these were, like most uh, Greek poetry, written in diaclitic hexameters, or uh, dialectic, get the two confused. Um they stress um they stress the artistic production like we think of poetry as being you know beautiful because it rhymes but really this was very practical um it rhymed so the so the poet would be able to remember what follows what, line after line. It's way easier to remember something that sounds like a song than it is to just remember a giant block of prose, as anyone who has, you know, done any acting will tell you. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, we are reading this in its unnatural, sort of petrified state, way out of its original context. Um, But a lot of the tricks and a lot of the details that Hesiod includes are there for memorizing purposes, Um, which is probably why the muses are seen to be descended from memory, namazni. Um, There is a deep connection to the Greeks between art on the one hand and memory on the other. You cannot produce art unless you have memory, and memory is tied into all of these stories of myths. Memory is how you know all this information about the gods, and that's how you can be pious. Um, There is a religious dimension here, there is an artistic dimension here, there is a practical dimension here, there's a lot going on. Um, Get used to thinking about all of these different reference points simultaneously when you approach texts like this. Um, Because, again, it would not have appeared in a textbook to the Greeks. That's just not how it worked. Um, But enough preface enough about the muses enough about the form let's talk about the actual business of Theogony, the creation um so if you start on page 35 the last block there under first elements and first gods we finally get like the creation of stuff um in the beginning there is apparently nothing except he stresses surely first of all chaos came into being Um, So the first sort of agent of the universe, the first thing, the first entity, the first thing that could be called a god under Hesiod's understanding is chaos. Um, Madness, void, emptiness, um, like disorganization in some way. It's not entirely clear, like we translate it chaos because because, like, the Greek is, in fact, chaos in this case. But we don't know what that word meant before Hesiod, because this is the earliest time that we encounter the term. Um, But we should notice that this is the primordial state for Hesiod. Chaos, nothingness, emptiness, uh, confusion. Um, That's where Hesiod sees the universe beginning. But the second thing that we're going to see is Earth, Gaia. And Earth is going to be way more important. Like in the grand tradition of the myths. We are never going to see chaos again after this passage. Like, that's part of why it's so cryptic and why we don't exactly know what Hesiod was getting at. Whatever chaos was, it's kind of gone and done after Gaia comes into being and we start seeing other gods show up. Um, with Gaia came order in some sense, and with order came the end of chaos. Um, but even that is sort of like our articulated interpretation way after the fact. That's probably not what Hesiod had in mind. Um, It seems more likely that it's like there was nothing and then somehow out of nothing there came Earth, Gaia. Um, And we should stress Gaia's role in this for a lot of reasons. Um, For one thing, there is like a Gaia surrogate in a lot of the myths that we're going to run into. Like, Earth is very frequently personified amongst ancient, ancient cultures and ancient myths. Um, and the Greek presentation of Gaia is very typical of the way that Gaia is usually seen. Um, And part of this, again, you should have remembered from Tolkien. Like, he drew a couple of explicit parallels to how Gaia or Earth is viewed. Um, And the things that I want to stress here, the things that you're going to see over and over in this text and elsewhere, um, first of all and foremost, Gaia is productive. She is fecund. Um, She is constantly pregnant and she is constantly giving birth to children. Um, Like, there is an overwhelming fertility about Gaia. Um, and this is how the Greeks kind of see the earth. Um, The earth just brings forth stuff for no reason and all of the time consistently and unpredictably. Like, you'll be walking along a stretch of ground that you've trodden many times, and there will be a plant there that you've never seen before, and you'll be like, well, how the hell did that get there? Well, that's because Gaia is unpredictably making stuff all the time. Um, In this text, you will see it, just all over the place. Like I think 80 or 90% of the various names that are going to come up in the total of the Hesiod's Theogony are either Gaia's direct offspring or her grandchildren, like in some sense. Um even some of her husbands, like she gives birth to Sky and then marries him and they have kids. Um and yes, surprise, there's going to be a lot of incest at this stage of the story and indeed There's going to be a fair amount of incest throughout the Greek myths. Hooray, more like controversial and disconcerting subject matter. Um, But the other thing to stress about Gaia is that she is represented as very feminine. Um, This is one of the big feminine archetypes that we're going to see over and over and over again in myth. Perhaps one of the most important. Um, Gaia is maternal. She is protective of her offspring in most cases. Um, you'll notice that she reacts with a sort of protectiveness when her children are wrong. So when Skye locks up the Cyclopes and the hundred armed like Briarios and Katos and uh, Gyges, um, she gets upset about it. Like She wants them out. She conspires against her husband for the sake of doing that. Which brings us to the third factor of her personality. She is deceptive. She is vindictive. Um, She is kind of a bitch. Um, And that's intentional too, I think. Uh, We will see that sort of character reflected in other deities throughout the Greek tradition, especially Hera. Um, But I want to sort of, like, focus in, because Gaia is almost even more important and even more primordial than Hera, even though she doesn't come up in many of the more exciting mythic sequences. Um, But she's also kind of bigger. Like, she is more productive. She is crazy productive. She is just going to, like, give birth to monsters and nymphs and plants and humans and all sorts of things all the time for no apparent reason. And you kind of have to, like see that as both your way into the greek attitude and like let the greek attitude sort of inform you in this case um they see the world as being both maternal and protective and loving um as being overabundant and generous and like unpredictable but also as being treacherous dangerous um something that will betray you if you cross it uh, Earth does not respond kindly to those who double-cross her. Um, so she's probably, like, the most important of the four big names at the very beginning of this text. Like, first we have Chaos, then we have Earth, then we have Underworld, which seems weird, especially in our conception of how the Earth works. Like, how can, you know, the Earth give... Birth to, or like, also have an underworld that is not part of her. Um, don't question it too deeply. We will see the underworld a lot over the course of our time here. It, um, it is referred here as Tartarus. Um, Tartarus is kind of like the deep underworld. Um, like We won't get too deeply into the whole sort of categories of death and how does Hades actually work at this point. We'll, we'll get there later, um, a little bit more during this lecture and a little bit later down the road when we talk about like Orpheus and Odysseus and people wandering in and out of Hades. Um, but Tartarus is like the worst part of Hades. It is the deep, ugly part of Hades. Um, there might be nice parts of Hades and it's not entirely clear like how does Hades relate to Tartarus, uh, but you don't want to end up in Tartarus. Most of the things that are dwelling in Tartaros, as this text tells us, are monsters, titans, stuff that's been locked up never to be released again. Um, It is the bowels of the earth, the deepest of the deep. As Hesiod points out elsewhere, like, if you drop a bronze anvil from the sky to the earth, it'll take like 10 days to hit the ground, and it is the same if you drop the anvil from like the earth level into Tartaros it'll take 10 days for it to get to Tartaros Um, so it's deep deep in there Um, and you do not want to find yourself there Um, but the last of the big four like the big four first elements and first gods is love and this is another theme that I want to sort of pick out and stress with Hesiod especially Um, love is one of the basic primordial forces for Hesiod, You've got Chaos, which who knows what the deal is with Chaos. You've got Earth, this abundant, creative, and potentially vindictive thing. You've got the Underworld, which is just like prison for immortal beings. And then you've got Love. Love does not come from any of these other gods or goddesses. It is not the son or daughter of Earth and Chaos. It just is. Um, It is beyond all of them. And notice, too, that by stressing this, by placing love at, at like, the very beginning of the universe as one of these four primordial cosmic forces, um, Hesiod is kind of suggesting that they outrank even the gods. Um, like as much as Zeus and Aphrodite are a big deal and there are all those other gods and goddesses we're going to talk to and obviously like Hesiod really stresses Zeus's power and you know the fact that he has the Aegis and therefore he's in charge you kind of get this sense that love is out of Zeus's control love is something that makes the gods do weird things too it is not subject to the rest of the created order keep that in mind because we're going to see it again Um, Then we get a list of other, like, sub-first-generation children. So we get Darkness and Night from Chaos. Um, We get Aether and Day from Night. We get Earth producing Sky, which is equal to her and is going to cover her and then, like, apparently have sex with her. Um, We get the Nymphs. We get Pontos the Sea, all from Gaia. Um, Basically, like, we started on a pretty impressive list of genealogical details here. This is also one of the priorities that Hesiod has. One of the things that you'll see a lot in all of these old myths and old written traditions, genealogies are just as important as the story in most cases. And I know that's, like, very alien to us. We always think that the genealogies are the most boring parts of these things. But for them, it's crucial. Um, It is how you remain pious. It is how you remember the order of the universe. Um, It is secret, hidden knowledge that only the wise can remember and possess. Um, And it is valuable, like it is knowledge that rewards you, in theory. Um, But the other thing is, when Hesiod talks genealogies, he's also talking about relationships. He's ordering the universe in a very real way here. By saying that night and, you know... Erebos are the sons of of chaos he's suggesting that there's something un or disorganized or unpleasant or dark or um scary about these things night um likewise when uh Hesiod stresses that sky is born of earth he is suggesting that sky is subordinate to earth that sky is less important than earth is um and that's kind of consistent so like, just a little while later we get all the Children of Night, and there are tons of them. There's doom, and there's fate, and there's death, and there's sleep, and there's lament, and there are the Hesperides and the fates, and there's like strife, and famine, and sorrow, and fighting, and battling, and murdering, and manslaughter, and quarrels, and lives, and infancy, and old age, and just like, this whole wild list. Um, all bad things. And notice that Hesiod is placing them in a giant pile with one another as the children of night. Dark, bad things that you don't want to deal with. Things that are scary and unpleasant and, you know, downright terrifying in some cases. All human evil, according to Hesiod, springs from night, which springs from chaos. But notice that Gaia isn't involved in this process. Uh, Gaia does produce her fair share of monsters, usually deliberately, um, but she is not responsible for like the evils that plague human beings. That's some kind of weird asexual production of Night. Um, which, again, you'll notice that that too is a theme here. When... Like, the natural order of things is gods and goddesses will sleep with each other, they will produce children, and those children will be the orderly masters of the universe. By contrast, night produces all this stuff by her own, on her own, and they're all bad, and we don't want anything to do with them. Um, there is a suggestion that Hesiod is making that love is the valid and perfect origin of all things. When you leave love behind, when you leave eros, um, sexuality behind, all sorts of bad things can happen. Um, Hesiod is suggesting that the universe is sexual, like on a very deep basic level. Um, There is no getting around that. That is the creative principle behind everything for Hesiod. Or at least everything good and everything that exists and everything that we want to interact with. Um, but going back from night and all of the bad things that she produces, it's time to like look at the main thread of this story. Um, so if you look at the top of page thirty-six, we get the first set of major figures in this divine like genealogical process. Um, we start with you know. As we said, Gaia produced Sky. now they are having sex with each other, um, and they produce their first generation of children, the Titans, as we will call them later. Um, most importantly for our purposes, you've got Hyperion, who is like sun-oriented, you've got Rhea, who is Zeus's mother, and important for that reason, we have Namazni, memory again, which we talked about earlier, um, and most importantly, we have Kronos crooked-minded Kronos, um, who very quickly becomes the king of the Titans for reasons that will become obvious a little bit later. But we also get two other sets of children from Gaia and Sky, from Uranus and Gaia. Um, we get the Cyclopes, who are emphasized here as having violent hearts, um, thunder and lightning, and tough-hearted brightness, who gave Zeus thunder and contrived the thunderbolt. Um, so first we get the Titans, and the Titans appear to be like they have names for one thing. They they are named like we have names, um, and it is you. They are usually depicted as being human in shape, like most of the Greek gods are humanoid-ish. Um, very rarely do you end up with something like the Egyptian pantheon, where like one somebody has like the head of an alligator or something. But the Cyclopes are are deliberately described as being different. These were really similar to the gods in every other respect, but a single eye was set in the middle of their forehead. Um, Because this eye is circle-shaped, they are called the Cyclopes. That's the name. Um, But notice the emphasis here. They are strong, they are violent, and they are crafty. They make stuff. Um, They invent the thunderbolts. So already we have a maker god. Um, Like somebody in the divine pantheon of significant importance who makes stuff. And we're going to see this idea come up fairly frequently as well, especially with Hephaestus, though we're not going to talk about Hephaestus until our next lecture. Um, If sex is the basic fundamental agent at the heart of everything that is creation, the second thing that the Greeks tend to put priority on is this business of making stuff, forging stuff, crafting stuff, inventing stuff. Um, And we will see this come up a good bit too, and you will see this power comes with its own advantages and disadvantages, especially contrasted with the other powers at stake here. Um, Now the third set of... Uranus and Gaia's progeny are the three monstrous, 100-handed, 50-headed Kratos, Brearios, and Gyges. Um, And these are apparently really crazy strong and possibly really violent, but we don't really see them very much. Um, They're described as arrogant for our purposes, But we also don't see them very much because Uranus apparently hates them and immediately locks both them and the Cyclopes away in Tartarus. So already we have a bit of a problem, strife, coming up between Uranus on the one hand and Gaia on the other, Sky and Earth. Um, Sky apparently can't bear the sight of these ugly children, the one-eyed Cyclopes and the hundred-handed they are's. Um, for our purposes, because they are conveniently named Katos, Briarios, and Gyges, I will be referring to them as the KJB, or KGB, since that is an accurate acronym of their name, as well as being an in- interesting riff on the Russian secret police. Um, so, we, now we've got three sets of players. we got the Titans, who are gorgeous, and who Uranus likes, um... We have the Cyclopes, who are violent and crafty, but are kind of ugly, so they're now locked away. And we've got the KJB, which are a giant mess, and Uranus doesn't want to look at them, so he locks them away too. But, Earth is upset about this. Um, he, she cannot bear trapping her children in Tartarus, so she starts to plot against Uranus. Um, and notice how this proceeds. Um, so, in the second paragraph under this section, Kronos castrates Uranus... Uh, It says, At once fabricating a type of gray adamant, she fashioned a sickle and showed it to her dear children. And she said, giving them courage, afflicted though she was in her own heart. Children of mine and of a reckless father, if you would be willing to obey me, we would avenge your father's evil outrage. For he was the first to conceive unseemly actions. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, First off, we have... Gaia plotting against Uranus. Second, we have her making this sickle out of adamant, this like mythical steel or iron or material of some kind. Um, something that is apparently indestructible and ver- capable of being very sharp. Um, but third, you notice that she accuses him of doing the first bad thing. Um, this is not like Christianity where humans are personally responsible for bringing evil into the world. The suggestion that Hesiod is making here is that the world was maybe not bad, maybe not good, maybe just indifferent until Uranus does this. Or at least this is Gaia's perspective, if we can trust Gaia on this one, which, eh, who knows? Um... But the suggestion is certainly that evil predates humans. We are not responsible for the downfall of the Earth. The Earth always was as messed up as it is. Um, now, the apparently, like, this is just the moment that Cronus has been waiting for. So while everybody else is like, oh, I don't want to take the sickle. I don't want to castrate my father or anything. Um, immediately, Cronus leaps up and he's like, yep, that's me. I'm totally on board for this. Let's Let's do this. I am sick of my dad. I am going to wreck him. Um, and he does, he lies in wait as Uranus is coming down to couple with Gaia. He jumps out and apparently uses the sickle and reaps his genitals from him. He castrates, uh, Uranus, um, and Uranus withdraws and he's very upset about it. Reasonably so. Um, and from now on, sky is going to be like considerably higher above the, above the earth. They're never going to meet again. Um, in part because they can't. Uh, but notice, again, Cronos is described as crooked-minded here and elsewhere. That's his epithet. Um, Homer is stressing that Cronus is not somebody we want to emulate. Um, his, like, willingness to jump up and castrate his father is indicative of his moral imperfection. Um, the fact that he's kind of not okay in the head. Um... So we don't trust Cronos. We are not inclined to trust Cronos. He is not heroic for taking this deed. Um, This is an act of selfishness. Um, But as a result of this action, Cronos now becomes king of the gods. He takes Uranus's position. Um, And this is another theme that we're going to see over and over and over again in mythic traditions. The idea that the world, like, succession is passed from father to son, not naturally among these immortal gods, but through violence um Cronos has to usurp his position as king of the gods he has to just like castrate Uranus and Zeus will have to you know defeat Cronos in battle in the same way um but on the subject of the actual genitals themselves because they have their own career here um the generals fall into the sea, and somehow we get a number of different various gods and goddesses, including some sea nymphs and other stuff. But the big thing here is that this is where Aphrodite shows up. Um, mysteriously the product of the intermingling of the genitals in the water, and I don't even know how the, all this works. Nobody pres- claims to be able to explain this. She comes up out of the sea on the island of Cyprus, and she like becomes this really important goddess on Cyprus, and this is how Aphrodite is born. Um, and notice, this means that for Hesiod, before Zeus, before Hera, before Hades, before Poseidon, before any of the other major gods... Aphrodite precedes them. Aphrodite the goddess of love. Um, Which this is probably as good a time as any to actually start cataloging our major gods. Uh, So if you jump forward a bit to the list of Cronus's children, let's just go through them one by one because each of them are going to be very important and we're going to keep meeting them over and over and over again. Um, But let's start with Aphrodite. Um, Aphrodite is one of, like, Aphrodite is ambiguous in the great Greek canon. Again, because there's this disagreement about where she comes from. Like, obviously, to Hesiod, she gets this sort of prominence of place. She exists before Zeus and the other gods. Like Eros, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex, is kind of the, one of these primordial forces in the universe. She is bigger or more ancient or more mysterious or more confusing or more unexplained than uh, Zeus and his ilk. Um, She is older. She is, like, more cryptic. Um, We cannot explain her. Um, Now, this isn't always the case. Like, the way that Homer represents Aphrodite in the Homeric Hymns and elsewhere is that she is one of many daughters of Zeus. Um, It's not entirely clear who she's the daughter of. Maybe it's Eros, maybe it's not, maybe it's somebody else. Like, different myths will give you different explanations if they give you one at all. Um, But Aphrodite is represented not in this, like, Hesiodic, ancient mysteriousness, but rather as being kind of petty and not terribly bright and also really pretty vindictive. Um Aphrodite, as Homer frequently represents her, she is the goddess of love but she, but Homer emphasizes the fickleness of love, the untrustworthiness of love, like Aphrodite will go out of her way to make people fall in love as punishment to them if they do something wrong or if they take her off or you know any number of things. Um, and this can end up in some fairly embarrassing situations, like narcissists falling in love with his own image, or, you know, people falling in love with animals, or people who they definitely shouldn't be in love with. Like, love for Hesiod is strange and powerful and at the foundation of the universe. Love for Homer is frequently a weakness. It is something small and, like, mean and cunning and womanly and bad, Um, which I guess now is as good a time as any to talk about this. Let's talk about women in the Greek understanding and culture. Um, Like, we were kind of touching on it when we talked about Gaia, because, you know, like, Gaia is represented as being this sort of archetypal, feminine, motherly thing. Um, But the Greeks frequently... Portray women in problematic ways. So, you know, both Aphrodite and Gaia will be vindictive and bitchy um, at various points in these myths. They will be represented as mean or like messing up the plans of dudes who are just trying to, you know, do their heroic deeds. Um, And that's really screwed up. And it's only going to get worse. Like, just wait until next week when we talk about Pandora. It's going to be so much worse. Um, And we're not kind of equipped to talk about all of the female archetypes here, because we still haven't gotten to Artemis and the others. But as we talk about these goddesses, like, be aware that for the Greeks, each of these goddesses also kind of represents a type for women to sort of be in. This is both how they understand women, like having observed them, but also a sort of prescription. What kind of woman do you want to be? Do you want to be motherly like Gaia or sexy like Aphrodite? Um, Do you want to be maternal and productive and protective the way that Gaia is maternal and productive and protective? Or do you want to sort of like entice without ever actually you know, doing anything with it, like Aphrodite is. Um, Aphrodite is the beautiful archetype for women, the sexy archetype, whereas Gaia is very much this maternal motherly archetype. She doesn't have to be beautiful. Um, that's not what she's there for. That's not her role in the grand cosmos. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at the next of our goddess. Uh, archetypes that we need to look at. Um, if again, if you look at page 40, that little bottom section there uh, where it lists the children of Rhea and Kronos, um, let's talk about the other like first generation goddesses produced by Rhea and Kronos, the, the first generation children of the Titans. Um, and the first one listed is Hestia. And Hestia is always the first one listed. She is simultaneously the eldest and youngest of the main, like, first-generation pantheon of the gods. Um, and, you know, part of that is because of the weird way that all these children are born. Like, we have this story of Kronos knowing that he's going to get overthrown by one of his children, like, immediately taking the babies from Rhea and devouring them, swallowing them whole, and they're apparently just, like, chilling in his stomach for some reason. Um... And Hestia is the first one to be born. She is the eldest. But because later, like, he swallows the stone instead of Zeus, and Zeus gives him the, the poison that causes him to vomit everything up, and all the gods get vomited in reverse order of when they were born, Hestia is the last to come out, and therefore the youngest. Um, the last born of Cronus and Reyes. Like, That's weird and confusing, but it also very much fits with where Hestia falls in the Pantheon. Um, Like, we're never, ever going to hear myths about Hestia. She is the most boring goddess. She will just hang out in Mount Olympus and, like, keep tending that fire and not involve herself in any plots or wars or, you know, skullduggery or, you know, illicit affairs or anything of that sort she's boring um and that's kind of what makes Hestia awesome um being boring in a society full of crazy wild violent figures and people always engaged in backstabbing and plots and stuff like that means that she's kind of the most reliable goddess um and you'll notice that like Um, Hesiod emphasizes here and Homer emphasizes in in the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite um, that you should absolutely give offerings first and last to Hestia um, the goddess of hearth and home and that's very much because Hestia represents a sort of order um, the status quo so to speak. Um, She is all about like protecting and preserving the home the family the hearth and that's her role in Olympus as well. She tends the fire. Um, she keeps the hearth fire burning while all of the gods are you know, doing their various things and engaging in meetings and flying all over the place and doing whatever it is that the gods are doing. Hestia doesn't leave. She is a homebody. Um, but also, as is emphasized in the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, she doesn't have a husband. Um, she doesn't ever fall in love. Um, and in fact, she is immune to Aphrodite's wiles, uh, one of only three goddesses who are. Um, but Athena and Artemis will be talking about next time. Um, so, like, it's weird to talk about Hestia because, again, we're not going to see her much at all in any of the other myths. But she is super important for the Greeks because she is not exciting. Um, And it's kind of hard for us to read exactly where she falls in, like, Greek worship. Um, But I want to also stress that archetype again. Like, if you've got Gaia the maternal archetype and, you know, Aphrodite the sexy archetype, here we have Hestia, who is a a dutiful woman um, who does not have a clear attachment to a husband or to a father, but rather is responsible for keeping a place safe, homey, and clean. Um, Like, this is absolutely the archetype of, like, the old maid in, you know, like, English culture in the 18th or 19th centuries. Um, She's not terribly attractive. She's got her own thing going on, but mostly she makes a safe place for other men and other women. And they are indispensable. Like the Greeks do not like downplay Hestia's role here as much as she doesn't get a whole lot of truck in myths, um, she is important, crucial to the operation of the gods and to the operation of Olympus. Um, it's just not terribly exciting or interesting. Um, so again, you do have this woman in a strangely powerful but also strangely subservient role. This is another of the slots that a woman can fit into as far as the Greeks are concerned. You can be the mother like Gaia, you can be the hottie like Aphrodite, or you can be a dutiful self-sacrificing servant like Hestia. Um, now, the next one we get is Demeter. And Demeter, I suspect, is not a new archetype in the way that like the others are. Demeter very much seems a lot like Gaia. Uh, All of the myths that we read about Demeter will tend to focus on the fact that she is productive. She is the goddess of the harvest, um, and therefore she is the primary goddess that farmers will be praying to for a good crop. Um, But she, as a result, is also like goddess of food and goddess of plants in general. Um, She is, once again, a fertility goddess, an abundance goddess, a goddess that produces. Um, She is a mother, and her relationship to her daughter Persephone is going to be the focus of the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, which we'll read for next time, which is, again, super important for reasons we'll talk about in the next lecture. Um, Once again, Demeter doesn't come up in a whole lot of myths, she features very prominently in her own myth, but we're not going to see her, like, fighting at Troy or inspiring heroes or getting a lot of, you know, press from the myth-makers. Um, she, like Gaia, is going to largely be in the background doing her thing, making sure that the plants show up um, every year like clockwork. That's her job. Again, very status quo-oriented. Um, and then our third major female goddess is Hera and Hera is where things are going to get real weird real fast um Hera is the goddess of childbirth she is the goddess of family um like Hestia she is very much associated with the hearth in the home but more in the like wifely productive way um she is the manager of Zeus's household so to speak um but also kind of not, because she's not good at it. Like, she is not warm and loving like Hestia is. Or if she is, it's very rarely presented to us that way. Um, the way that we're going to see Hera most is as a slighted, jilted woman trying to get back at her husband, Zeus. Um, like, we haven't gotten to Zeus yet, and I do want to, you know, talk about Zeus and like his own right later once we get to you know the the gods in addition to the goddesses but one of the defining characteristics of zeus is he is a playa um he will go around and sleep with all of the women mortal immortal nymphs you name it like if she's hot zeus is interested in it and zeus being the king of the gods there's literally nothing standing in his way from just indulging in any sexual pleasure that he feels like indulging in or rather, there would be nothing in his way if it wasn't for the fact that Hera constantly gets mad at him about these extramarital affairs. Um, now keep in mind, Zeus is married to a lot of people. Like, Zeus is married to Nemesis. this is where we get Calliope, he is married to Metis, this is where we get Athena. Um, he is in multiple relationships with other goddesses like Leto, who seem to be fairly legitimate and may be married, but... It doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, Hera is jealous of all of them. Um, And that's her defining characteristic, as far as the Greeks are concerned. Hera is the goddess of wives, but she is the goddess of jealous wives. Um, If Aphrodite is the woman that all men want to sleep with, Hera is the woman that all men go home to. Um, And this is literally how it's perceived, and I am not going to try and apologize for it. Like... This is a very screwed up way to see women um, as being either like, you know, maternal like Gaia or Hera and also vindictive and potentially ruining everybody's fun or hot like Aphrodite and fairly easy to, you know, have sex with. It's messy, like so messy. Um, But this is the role that Hera is going to play. This is what we're going to see her doing over and over and over again. Um, so, this is, you know, to the Greeks, an important part of womanhood. Um, now, admittedly, there are other characteristics here. Like, the more positive takes on womanhood we'll probably talk about next time. Like, Artemis and Athena both stand up to contemporary scrutiny by comparison to Hera, Gaia, Hestia, Demeter, etc. Um, so, you know, hold your rock throwing for the time being. We'll, we'll come back to the subject. Um, but I also want to stress, like, it's not just the Greeks were backwards about their views on women. Um, this is just the archetypes that Greeks saw women falling into. Um, and the same is true for men. Like, the gods that the Greeks worship and represent are typically representative of the way that men are. Different masculine characteristics, different masculine sort of stereotypes, um, in a manner of speaking. Um, And it's not quite as cut and dry as, like, you know, the Greeks are trying to tell women to stay in their place, though that is a part of what's going on here. Like I said, it's reciprocal. This is the product of both observation on the part of the Greeks, seeing women in their culture, but also then going the next step and prescribing what women should be like to future generations. As my definition pointed out, it is a, the stories a culture tells to itself to communicate its values. Um, it is representative of what they see and it is representative of what they want um, at the same time. But let's talk about those men. Um, So already we've dealt with Kronos. He is not one of the big Greek pantheon because he's going to spend most of the myths in Tartarus being locked up where Zeus doesn't want to deal with him. Um, But we do need to talk about the big three who are presented here. And they're usually presented as the big three. Like These are the dominant gods in the Olympic pantheon. They get primacy of place. The fact that we didn't talk about them first is just because we... Like In this conversation, in my sort of free-flowing train of thought, I got hung up on Aphrodite and the women first. Um, But the fact of the matter is, all of those women goddesses, as mysterious as Aphrodite might be, are definitely secondary to the big three gods. Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Um, and typically in that order, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Uh, once again, this is the backwards logic of this particular weird like generative process. Zeus being the last child of Kronos, um, but also being the one that escapes being devoured, is kind of the firstborn. Poseidon being the second to last, and the last one devoured is going to be the firstborn of Kronos after Zeus. And so on with Hades. But what I want to stress here is that there's a sort of brotherhood and a sort of comparable power set to Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. Um, Now Hesiod tells elsewhere, I want to say in the works and days, or maybe it's in this text and I just missed it this time around, um, that they draw straws for control of the domains of earth. Like Everyone knows in the Greek culture that there are three realms. There is the earth, there is the sky, and there is the sea. These are the three most important like realms of being in the world. Um, and Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades apparently draw straws. They, you know cast lots um, for control of these three realms. So in theory, it's just dumb luck or fate. That causes, you know, Zeus to be the master of the sky, Poseidon to be the master of the ocean, and Hades to be the master of the underworld or the earth, so to speak. Um, But at the same time, like, they are, it is very much intrinsic to each of their characters. Like, Zeus is king of the gods. He rules over all of the Earth from his high position on Mount Olympus. He frequently hangs out in clouds. He wields thunderbolts and strikes people with lightning when they misbehave or they vi- or they offend him in some way. Um, Zeus is all over the place. Like... I cannot stress the importance of Zeus enough. As much as Aphrodite may be ancient and may be able to, you know, like mess with Zeus by having him fall in love inconveniently, um, it is also stressed that Zeus, at the end of the day, can get her back. Um, like in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, Homer stresses, you know, Aphrodite gets one up on Zeus every time that, you know, he causes or she causes family strife between him and the Harib over some woman that he's been chasing around. But Zeus still gets her at the end of the day um, with her relationship with Anchises. Um, Hesiod will stress in the part of the theogony that we like skipped over but we'll talk about it next week that you cannot outsmart you cannot escape you cannot out cunning zeus um zeus is in charge zeus is just zeus is a righteous king um zeus is like the king of the gods the most powerful force in the universe um consistently proven when like even more ancient powers set themselves up against him um, like with Gaia and, Tri- and uh, Typhon, or like when, you know, during the battle with the the Titans. Um, but Zeus generally runs the show. Uh, so, like, the major characteristics to keep in mind here are Zeus is the god of the sky, for sure. Like, he's got that elemental quality. He chucks lightning bolts at people. He is the king of the gods. He rules over the whole shebang, like Olympus is his domain, and everything on Earth is his domain at this point. He is the god of justice because he is the god of kings and of righteousness and, like, all the, you know, good qualities of kingship. Um, And he is also absolutely a womanizer. Like, he is, he just cannot keep his hands off of anything that moves and has a skirt. Um, That's what you're going to run into perhaps most in the myths about Zeus. Um, like, tons of myths will start with Zeus had sex with a mortal woman and hilarity ensues. Um, so get used to that. Like, I I realize that, you know, this is kind of super misogynistic. The Greeks would not have seen it that way. Um, the Greeks would see this not as being admirable. Like, they recognize that Zeus gets in trouble all the time because of his affairs um but as you know just being normal dude behavior um this is what is expected of a powerful lord or king um this is what is expected of somebody who is virile and powerful and able to take any woman that he wants um, without fear of repercussions so Yeah, it's ugly and it's messy and it will very much be rape a lot of the time. But the Greeks see this as, if not like actually admirable, then at least comical or, um, you know, neutral in its value system. Zeus is not a bad person for what he does. Um, This is just who he is. Um, That's how most men are, the Greeks would argue. Um, Now, the other two do not have quite as much characterization but we are going to see them pretty frequently throughout the texts um so first is poseidon and poseidon is weird um like poseidon most obviously is the god of the sea like that is the dominant characteristic that we're going to know about poseidon like he is the bane or friend of sailors especially and considering that greek is a Greece is a giant archipelago. It makes sense that Zeus would be, you know, or that while Zeus is super important, Poseidon is also super important because anywhere you go in Greece, you're going to be dealing with the water. Um, You sail to get anywhere. Like most of the major cities are connected not at all, and you have to go over the ocean to get from place to place. Um, So Poseidon's a big deal. But the other thing is that Poseidon is not consistent. Um, like his other major powers that we're going to see is he is the god of earthquakes, um, which actually does make sense from the Greek mindset. Like they see the the world, the continent of Europe and the whole Greek archipelago as resting on a giant subterranean ocean. Um, Like, if you look at a Greek map, there's one at the the beginning of our textbook. Um, It shows, like, the round world with just a chunk of, like, Greece and, you know, southeastern Europe represented there, as well as some of the rest of the northern Mediterranean. Um, But it's surrounded by this bigger ocean. Like, the sea... Pontos is where all of the actual action is going to take place when you are sailing, because nobody has ever made it as far as the actual ocean, except like the pillars of Hercules when he sets them up. Um, but the entirety of the, the land mass, the world as the Greeks know it, like sea and all, um, is surrounded by this bigger ocean and it sits on this bigger ocean. It is floating at all times. Um, So, you know, big sea sitting in giant island floating on even more massive ocean. Um, That's the way that the Greeks see the universe. So, Poseidon is the god of earthquakes because if Poseidon messes with the ocean underlying the land, the earth that is resting on the ocean shakes. So, earthquakes are actually the product of not like plate tectonics and geology, but water moving around. Um, So, that's why he is largely in charge of earthquakes. Um, And, you know, that means that you have to keep Poseidon happy even if you're not going on a big sea voyage, because otherwise he'll just wreck your town. Um, Greece is also on a fault line, much like California, so they get earthquakes all the time over there. Um, So this was another fact of Greek life. Like, just as much as you have to, you know, get in a boat to go anywhere, you were also in constant danger of earthquakes and should keep Poseidon happy, lest he, you know, blow up your town with an earthquake. Um, Now, the other thing that Poseidon is known for is he is the god of horses. And that one just doesn't make sense. Like... I don't know exactly what the symbolism you would normally attribute horses to would be, but the fact that the water guy and the earthquake guy is also the horse guy, just like, I have no idea. Um, And part of the reason, like, when scholars investigate this, this sort of reveals how composite these myths actually are. Um, Like, the suggestion that most scholars that I've read have about, like, how you get Poseidon, god of oceans, earthquakes, and horses, um, is that there's two conflicting mythic traditions that are sort of bump into each other and feed off of each other to make the Greek religion that we see here. Um, On the one hand you have the native Greeks, the Mycenaeans. Um, They swung through uh, the island of Crete and took over the Greek archipelago, um, probably from Carthage in northern Africa at one point in the very distant past. Um, But they are also meeting... The people typically called the Aryans or the Indo-Europeans coming out of India, coming across the Russian mountains, and coming into Europe from the north. Um, And it is suggested that the typical pantheon like Zeus, Poseidon, Hades covering uh, sky, water, and earth is an Aryan concept. Um, but it meets the Mycenaean tradition, which has this specifically earmarked god of horses. And so Poseidon becomes a, a, a like conglomerate of the god of the Mycenaeans, who is in charge of horses and also the ocean, but also the god of the Aryans, who is the god of the ocean and earthquakes and stuff like that. And this is, you know... Like we can't track all of the details. A lot of this is speculative, hypo- hypothetical, um, the product of you know anthropologists and archaeologists studying this stuff and coming up with their best theories to explain how we get these weird stories. Um, and to some degree, I do think that that's valuable. Um, And you can see weirdnesses like this all the time. Like, a lot of the Greek pantheon is littered with these sort of composite gods that seem to have come from these two traditions, or, you know, the occasional weird outlier god who doesn't seem to make all that much sense, like Dionysus, who may have predated the Arian presence in Greece. Um suffice it to say that these myths have myths underlying them and those myths have other myths and so on and so forth there are many ancient traditions bumping into each other to give us the greek classical tradition like we frequently talk about hesiod as though he is bedrock but this is not bedrock it goes way deeper and it's just beyond us to understand exactly where the bedrock actually is like what is the proto-myth underlying all myths we have no idea Like, we only have copies of copies of copies, which are themselves transmitted through, like, numerous cultural permutations. Um, And Poseidon is one of those products. So, yeah, we're going to see him do... A whole lot in the course of our myths. Like, he's not as active as some of the other gods and goddesses, especially the ones who like inspire heroic deeds. He's not as active as Zeus because he's not sleeping with as many women. Um, Poseidon typically hangs out in the ocean, but also don't mess with him. Like, he is a god who is especially mean when crossed. Um, Poseidon is typically vengeful, he has a long memory, and he comes up with some pretty creative ways to screw you over, um... So again, we have like these masculine archetypes, like we had the feminine archetypes. We have Zeus, the womanizer, who is generally fun-loving and you know is having a good time, but is also like stern and just and powerful. We have Poseidon, who is a bit reclusive and aloof, um, who generally doesn't involve himself in people's affairs, but when he does, he makes a strong impression. Um, and then we have Hades, and Hades is going to get probably the least truck of the three but where he shows up he's gonna be a big deal um like if Poseidon is aloof hanging out in the ocean Hades like he never ever ever comes to the surface um Hades resides in the realm of Hades um the name of the place and the name of the person is the same Hades um and he is the lord of the dead The dead, when they die, they go down to the realm, Hades, where Hades, the god, is in charge. Um, He is king of that realm. And generally speaking, the gods don't mess with him, and he doesn't mess with them. There is not a whole lot of truck between the underworld and the overworld. Um, Whatever is going on on the surface, Hades doesn't care, and whatever is going on underground, the other gods don't care. He has pretty much undisputed rule over the dead, and it is pretty much hermetically sealed from the rest of the universe. And everything, everyone seems pretty okay with this. Um, Like, I realize that, you know, especially because of the Disney Hercules movie, you kind of get this sense of Hades as being, like, brooding and and dark and evil and and manipulative and, and villainous. But that's not the way it works. Um, the The whole tradition of Hades very much got co opted uh, by Christianity in like the early centuries of Christianity's growth and development. And by our time now, the difference between Hades and the devil is like really unclear and ambiguous. Um, they share a lot of the same territory, but that's not how the Greeks saw Hades at all. Um, Hades was implacable. Um, he was like unflinchingly just and pragmatic um he was like there is one case of hades getting emotional maybe two depending on who tells about it and that's it like the rest of the time he is just this like weird faceless implacable force ruling over the dead um and i think that this actually informs the greek understanding of death It, like Hades, is implacable. You cannot mess with it. You cannot bargain with it. You cannot overcome it. You cannot, like, trick it or, you know, tease it or manipulate it. It is as firm and as constant and as predictable and as solid as anything in the Greek universe. Um, Mortality is permanent, and so is Hades. Um, And as a result, like, the defining characteristic of Hades is he does not change. Um, He is just firm in whatever his judgments on people are. Um, Now, the other thing that you should keep in mind about Hades, because it will come up from time to time, is he's freaking loaded. Um, By having, like, domain over the realm of the underworld... Uh, Hades lays claim to all buried precious metals, all gemstones, like those are all his. Um, So supposedly in Hades are vast hordes of useless wealth, like gold and silver and jewels piled up like chamber after chamber throughout Hades' mansions, but it doesn't matter because nobody uses it and nobody cares about it and Hades himself won't use it because like he just has this stuff what does he want he's a god um, but there's more than one story of some foolhardy you know treasure seeker like trying to break into Hades and get this stuff and also get out um, but it never works like the other emphasis on Hades's realm is that it is extremely well protected There is a process by which you die and get into Hades. Um, First, you have your family put coins on your on your eyes, like the eyes of your corpse. Um, It is traditional in Greek culture that you are buried with with the coins on your eyes. Um, That's so you can pay the ferryman, uh, Charon, um, who will ferry you over the river Styx. Um, Hades is protected on one side or on all sides by the River Styx. And the River Styx has significant importance here in Hesiod's Theogony, as I hope you noticed. Um, not only is it the river that causes people to, you know, like the, the river that protects Hades from the rest of the universe, but it's also like a goddess in its own right and an important one who saved the day at one point. Um, So Zeus has this deal now that like whenever the gods make a sacred and binding vow, they vow by the river Styx. And the river Styx will hold them to that vow. And in fact, if the gods break a vow to the river Styx, they will apparently be like... Silenced for a year, and they like go into this long year-long sleep where they just can't interact with the rest of the world. And the gods don't want that, so obviously they will never break a vow to the River Styx. But you won't see them make those vows all the time. Like, geez, guys, figure it out. This is obviously a bad idea. Um, but the other thing that you will see is Charon ferrying people over. I think it's the River Leaf, not Styx. I don't know whether it's like a tributary or a completely different river altogether. Um, Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. Um, when you pass over it, you forget your experiences as a living person. Um, not all of them, but we will see shades interact with like heroes and stuff who do remember certain things. Um, but Lethe, or Leith, is all about forgetting, and it is another key component of the defenses of Hades. Um, But the big one, the key one that you should definitely remember because he will factor into a number of different important myths is Cerberus. Cerberus in Hesiod's Theogony is a 50-headed monster dog who serves as Hades' faithful pet and guard dog. In most other traditions, we're going to see that he only has three heads, so you should probably keep that one in mind rather than the 50-headed version. Um, But importantly for both Hesiod and those other traditions, Cerberus is very tame to anyone who is coming into Hades. Like, you can pet his head, he will be very, you know, easygoing, soft-natured, very nice, but if you try and leave, he will bite your leg off. Like, you do not mess with Cerberus. Um, He is of the line of Typhon, one of the great monsters of the Greek tradition. But unlike most of them, which end up doing bad things and like heroes and gods have to overcome them, Cerberus is sort of like contracted by Hades to protect Hades. Um, So keep an eye out for Cerberus. Um, But the the other one thing that I do want to talk about in terms of Hades are a couple of like the other subservient gods and goddesses hanging around the place um, which are actually children of Nyx and other children that get talked about in other places in the Theogony but are worth mentioning for a couple of reasons. Um, First off are the Furies, the Erinyes, E-R-I-N-Y-E-S. The Furies track down and murder anyone who commits certain crimes usually blasphemy or murder in their own right. Um, or like the people who betray another person, who are traitors to a cause. Um, the Aerones are Furies. They tend to rest in Hades. That's where they tend to hang out. But you do not want them after you. Um, we won't see them terribly often in the myths that I picked out for the class. But they sort of hang over people's heads as being this terrifying force of retribution. Um, that like the, there's sort of this self-correcting justice in the universe that if you break some of those key rules, the Furies will track you down and make your life a living hell. Um, and then when you get to the underworld, they're going to continue to make your life a living hell. Um, so don't mess with the Furies. But the last ones that I definitely want to draw attention to, and I'm kind of running short on time or else I would go on and talk about the Homeric and Aphrodite, but there's so much to cover here that hopefully you've read it closely and we can talk about some of the other stuff in class. Um, the, other th- the other gods I want to talk about are the Fates. Um, you'll notice they get some like named billing um, on, in the uh, paragraph on Night and Her Offspring, The Moirai, destinies, and the ruthlessly avenging fates. Um, The Moirai, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropo, who give mortals good and evil to have just as they are born. Um, Fate is a hugely important concept for the Greeks. Um, Part of the reason why there's that emphasis in C.S. Lewis's experiment on criticism on how myths feel inevitable is because they're very wrapped up with the Greek notion of fate. Um, Frequently, these myths will have to do with the way that humans, and for that matter, the gods, interact with fate. And importantly, there is, especially in Homer, a complete subservience to fate. Um, Even Zeus cannot gainsay the will of the fates. If the Fates have declared that a human life is going to end at this point, or have this bad thing happen to them, or have this good thing to happen to them, Zeus can't do anything about it. Um, You cannot stop, or change, or halt, or modify fate in any way. Um, Fate is absolute. Um, Now, the way that they are usually portrayed, uh, the three Fates, is they are basically spinning lives of thread um so you know they typically represent the fates as having you know one person who like spins the thread makes it into thread one person who measures out the thread and then the third will cut the thread at the moment of death um so life for the Greeks is conceived of as being this thread of experiences, this thread of your livelihood Um, and it is entirely under the control of the fates um, at all times and this probably goes for the gods as well Um, they have a strange and sort of absolute power Um, and we will see the Greeks attitude on fate again and again and again and again in this class Um, so keep an eye out for it um, but that's kind of what I wanted to stress for this particular session. I wanted to talk about the whole creative process. Um, I wanted to talk about like the major gods that we're going to run into over and over and over again. The big three, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, and the four first-generation goddesses, Aphrodite, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia. Um, so keep an eye out on those. We'll talk about the rest of the major pantheon in the next session. Um, as for like the rest of the Titanomachia I hope that you read it closely there's a lot of really important stuff in there Um, but we will also be coming back to the Theogony later when we talk about the creation of human beings, um, which there's a lot going on there as well. Um, So stay tuned, read the Homeric Hymns, um, specifically the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, to Apollo, and to Dionysus for uh, the next lecture, um, and we will talk about those and cover the second generation of gods at that point. Um, So enjoy...